0: Joined by Claudia Rosette, author of the new broadside, What to Do About the UN. Miss Rosette is an award winning journalist who has reported over the past three decades from Asia, the former Soviet Union, Latin America, and the Middle East. She's widely credited with groundbreaking reporting on the United Nations, the topic of this book, and its dealings with despotic regimes. Ms. Rosette is a foreign policy fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, and previously she was an editorial writer and foreign correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you, Ben.
0: Claudia, there's one quote in your book that permeates, I think, all of the intent behind why you wrote it, and also which illustrates the, the problems of the U.N., Um, from its very beginnings and to today, and that is this quote. On balance, the U.N. offers far more benefits at the margins to despotisms than it does to its Democratic chief patrons. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Sure. Uh, The United Nations is not actually a Democratic institution. It's a collective. And it's a collective that nobody actually is able to call to account. It reports to itself. Uh, And... The incentives are for the worst members, the rogue states, the really troublesome uh, regimes around the world, to exploit its benefits as much as they possibly can. I mean, we saw this with Saddam Hussein under oil for food uh, in Iraq years back, where you've been seeing it with Iran. We even see it with North Korea. It's a place that confers a legitimacy on tyrannies that they do not actually deserve have not earned at home and they also they basically they don't just get funding from the world's leading democracies especially the united states they also get legitimacy from it we treat them well north korea has a seat at the un and enjoys all the diplomatic privileges and immunities there that any democratic state does so The incentive is for the worst to try and make the most out of whatever they can at the U.N., which is one of the reasons we see them populating uh, outfits like the U.N. Human Rights Council. And this has been sort of the problem over and over at the U.N. for decades now.
0: Well, and to look at how the U.N. has evolved, it also pays to look at the UN from its beginnings, and you talk about conferring legitimacy on essentially illegitimate regimes on the basis of what we value in the West. To that end, you mention in the book that Stalin's Soviet Union was put on the UN Security Council at its inception, and that in many ways set the tone for the entire institution. In your view, is that sort of the original sin of the UN, so to speak?
1: Yeah, well, it represents the original sin, which is that membership is morally blind. Okay, it's in theory, it's not. If you read the UN Charter, uh, member states are admitted when they are committed to upholding basically individual dignity, freedom, peace loving and so on. But that is not the way it works at all in practice. In fact, if they were if they actually honored the UN Charter, they would kick out a fair number of the current members. So it's a very funny, amorphous institution, where in some things, uh, again, the worst states sort of are able to take advantage of some of its rules and the special privileges that it gives them. And at the same time, they're not actually held to account. Again, one of the big problems here is that the UN really isn't accountable to anybody. Uh, It's a vehicle for whoever is able to try to steer it and the trouble is the greatest incentive to try to steer it belongs to the worst members of the U.N.
0: One of the institutions within the U.N. that you mention reflecting this is the U.N. Commission on Human Rights. Tell us a little bit about the UNHCR's record.
1: Yeah, this has been one of the great farcical committees for (laughs) for ages. the, the original uh, committee or commission or council was the Commission on Human Rights, which was set up in 1946 to try to weave together this international fabric of humanitarian law and you know uphold human rights. Uh, this was became this incredible magnet for every human rights abuser at the UN because what they were trying to do was not weave the fabric of human rights, but actually redefine the entire process. It was very Orwellian, it still is. Uh, such that they themselves were cast as uh, honoring human rights, uh, even as they crushed, oppressed, destroyed their own people. This became such a farce. By, 19, by 2003, uh, the council was just populated by, crammed with dictatorships, uh, chaired by Gaddafi's Libya, and focused obsessively, as happens at the UN over and over, on condemning Israel, okay, specifically Israel. Others were sort of got to pass. Um, This was finally dissolved in what was supposed to be a reform in 2006, and the UN set up. It became so embarrassing, even the UN couldn't let it keep going. So it was dissolved, and the UN then created the current Human Rights Council, uh, which has become just as bad, because again, it's a problem of incentives and the actual structure and rules of the UN once again. Russia, China routinely gets seats, so does Cuba and it's become yet again, a council that is focused primarily on condemning Israel and well and uh, welcomes to seats, uh, countries that are known abusers of human rights and you end up once again with something where it completely inverts the purpose, what's supposed to be, A council dedicated to defending human rights, which is a very important thing to do, becomes a place where, uh, as on animal farm, nothing means what it actually is supposed to mean. And they come away with, countries come away, such as China, come away with this stamp of member of the Human Rights Council, able to pronounce on other countries, and they're not actually held to account, but they can say, we sit on the Human Rights Council. It's extremely perverse and uh, it actually does a terrible disservice to real victims of human rights abuses.
0: And as our listeners know, of course, this is in keeping with the idea that government institutions and bills, for example, uh, are often inaptly named. They often reflect one thing and in practice illustrate another. Uh, One particular element of your book that I found interesting was your discussion of UNICEF, which people think of as doing good as a charitable institution. Tell us a little bit about the history of UNICEF.
1: Yeah, we'll look a little closer. Look, when I give talks on the UN, one of the questions I often start with is how many of you have collected coins when you were children for UNICEF, right? It's a Halloween thing. I did it. And It feels good. You know, you think that you're helping children around the world. Well, if you look a little closer at the actual UN agency, UNICEF, it has a 36-member board which oversees its operations, makes the policy decisions, is is its its governing board. And among the members currently, uh, one that just jumps out at me is Iran, which is distinguished for among other things, um, leading the world in juvenile executions. Do you really want them on the board of UNICEF, the UN's children's agency? Uh, China, which only rather recently abandoned its one-child policy, which entailed forced abortions and fines for parents who brought to term a second child without state permission. Um, That's very UN. Uh, I also, so, some years back, was browsing the UNICEF site late at night, as one does, and came across on their Iran webpage a solicitation for donations to UNICEF uh, in Gaza. And they were asking people in Iran to donate money to a bank that happened to be under UN and US sanctions for its connections to Iran's nuclear and missile programs. and. And uh, I called up UNICEF and said, what exactly is going on with this? Because you're, what, you're bankrolling children in Gaza, which is run by the terrorist group Hamas, uh, and you're soliciting money from Iran, which is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, according to the United States, and you're running the donations through a bank that has been blacklisted, sanctioned for its role in Iran's proliferation programs. Is this a good idea? To which they said, we don't divulge confidential information. There's nothing to worry about. We're not going to share this with you. Anyway, that's the sort of thing where at the UN, because they have privileges and immunities, they can do it. And you really can't do anything about it. If any private group tried that, uh, certainly a private group under US US jurisdiction, it is likely that somebody would have gone to prison. But the UN gets to do it. And, uh, you know, it's it's virtually impossible to do anything about. Anyway, this was, you were asking me about UNICEF. That is an anecdote about the UN Children's Agency. So children are sort of the poster, literally the poster children. But if you actually start looking at the operations, uh, it is just full of dictatorships that abuse children and their parents horribly. And uh, if you then dig further into its financial practices, they become sometimes profoundly troubling.
0: Since you mention the financial practices, that provides a great segue into my next question, which is, what is the cash for Kim quote unquote scandal?
1: Ah, oh, that was quite a that was a lulu. Um, that was in two thousand seven. A uh, the UN has a lot of offices in North Korea, a totalitarian state run by the Kim dynasty dictatorship uh, since the nineteen since Stalin installed them in the nineteen forties, and the UN has a whole raft of operations and programs there, which are coordinated through its flagship agency, the UN Development Program, or UNDP. Well a whistleblower came forward to the US uh, from the UNDP office in Pyongyang to say that among other things, they were, um, the UNDP was giving money to the North Korean government and was keeping counterfeit US banknotes in its office safe, which is not not a good promising sign. the uh, US mission began digging into this and discovered uh, there was a whole raft of terrible things that had been going on. The UN development program was making use uh, of its diplomatic immunities and privileges to import into North Korea, dual use items for use by the North Korean government, meaning items that could be repurposed for weapons programs, okay? This is North Korea, which was working on nuclear weapons, which still is, which is testing ballistic missiles, which is a major problem and threat uh, to South Korea, grow to Japan, to Asia, and increasingly to the U.S. itself, um, which was just, we have for some reason to believe, assassinated the half-brother of the current dictator, Kim Jong-un, using a weapon of mass destruction, V.S. nerve gas, in a Malaysian commercial airport. That's North Korea. Anyway, the U.N. development program in 2007 was caught funneling money to the North Korean government, millions of dollars, uh, allowing North Koreans to handle its bank account, which they apparently used to set up dummy accounts and transfer money through proliferation-related entities in places like Macau and Singapore. Um, and. Uh, also was, in fact, yes, keeping U.S. counterfeit U.S. $100 banknotes in his office safe. While this was going on, North Korea was sitting on the governing board of the U.N. Development Program, which was flying North Korea's representatives to New York business class to sit at its board meetings. That was a classic U.N. operation. This became known as the Cash for Kim scandal. Uh, when it began, when it first surfaced, then-Secretary General Ban Ki-moon Said that there should be a worldwide audit of independent audit of all UN operations to try and make sure that nothing more like this would happen. Uh, Within days, he backed off that promise. It never took place. They shut down the UN Development Program Office for a little while in Pyongyang. Then they reopened it. Nobody at the UN was actually punished. And it hangs out there as this appalling window on the kind of, the kind of, problems that will arise with the UN, especially when it becomes, as it too often does, complicit with the dictatorships where it is trying to operate in the name of relief.
0: So you lay out in this broadside essentially a parade of horrible, as you talk about the UN being an unaccountable, a corrupt institution, one that, as we discussed earlier, confers legitimacy upon illegitimate human rights abusing regimes. You even write that the UN closely resembles a neocolonial empire. What benefits, if any, in your view, does the UN provide to the United States and the Western world more broadly?
1: Very little. Um, look, there is a use for something, for a talking shop that actually does have, a, it serves a purpose to have a place where Envoys of the best and the worst can all sit down together and talk. Uh, but to append to that, an institution with a, a budget that at this point is somewhere well above $40 billion a year, a substantial, something like roughly a quarter of that coming from the United States, taxpayers. Uh, and give it all sorts of reach immunities, privileges around the world. That was the neo-colonial empire to try and prescribe everything from how energy is used with the promise that they will regulate the climate of the planet, which this is, a a, the UN can't even keep track of its own money, okay? Let alone, uh, and it should not be set set free to try to regulate the energy of the world. Um, But, you have, the, you have here something where the United States signed on with the idea that we needed some outfit that could help to defuse crises, that would help to preserve peace, that would try to avert another world war, okay, another mass conflagration. And what you have at the UN at this point is a place that actually allows problems to fester, sort of cut, papers them over without solving them. Take North Korea as an example without solving them. And they get worse and worse. And more and more promises are made by the UN that something will be done. Take Syria as another example. Take the problems now arising with Russia, uh, which has a veto at the UN Security Council. So nothing really gets addressed. And you now have an institution that's actually helping. It's sort of like a pressure cooker with a lid. It sounds like, oh, something is getting done. Actually, There are plenty of reasons to believe that to see that uh, the UN gets in the way. It is more an institution that tries to offer central planning around the planet, which has been a disaster, which has sort of defaulted to promising to fix the climate of the earth, which is baloney. And um, as far as actually preserving peace, the UN is not doing it. And so what does the US get out of this? nothing that we couldn't get out of renting a gym somewhere in Kansas and inviting the diplomats to go there and talk. And my argument is that the rest of it, we really need to take a look and say, what is the opportunity cost of maintaining this huge institution, which has been growing and growing and has defied for decades, any real effort at reform? And is there not some better way? Because what we get out of it actually. I should I should add what we get out of it in some cases is less than nothing. It becomes a magnet for anti-American uh groups. Behavior, let me give you a concrete example of that. The biggest voting block in the uh, I'm sorry, the second largest voting block in the General Assembly is the non-aligned movement, 120 members. Um that's 119 member states plus the Palestinian Authority. There are 193 member states at the UN, so this is a large portion of the membership. What countries have chaired this non-aligned movement? Well, uh, right now it's Venezuela, which is a basket case. Um, Before that, it was Iran. Before that, it was Egypt, Cuba. It's been this (laughs) series of countries that are in no way models of what the world should be following or doing. And when you had Iran chairing it, This was not a group that was encouraged to be friendly to the United States, the very opposite, likewise with Venezuela now in charge. And what the UN provides is a clubhouse where that kind of angle on the US, anti-Americanism, is sort of brought to the fore. Countries can get together and in very plush surroundings, thumbing their nose at the United States while enjoying the substantial amenities of a very nice recently revamped for a cost of more than $2 $2 billion U.N. headquarters in New York, plus its offices around the world, thumb their noses at the United States and pursue initiatives that very often actually undermine democratic values, America and its allies. Uh, So what we get out of it is basically a chance to talk. And what we give is, uh, what we get back are some very bad things.
0: Your broadside comes out at, at a very opportune time in that you have a US presidential administration that is similarly skeptical of the institution and um, espouses, you know, sort of a view that a globalist institution like this does not necessarily serve America's national interest. It's not necessarily in our compelling national interest to engage in an institution that essentially serves to legitimize our enemies and also subjects us to essentially a global government-esque or pseudo-government sort of regime. Uh, given that that's the case, uh, what would you like to see the Trump administration do with respect to the United Nations? And what are your initial impressions of the ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley's initial actions at the U.N.?
1: The Trump administration should bypass the U.N. as far as possible. What I'm strongly urging in this broadside is that it really is time to look at how could we leave the U.N. behind, supplant it, replace it. What are the. And somebody needs to do a serious study of this. You know, people call for it periodically. I have. I but if you ask how do we actually unwind the U.S., how could we unwind the U.S. from the immensely complex net of commitments to the U.N., um, that's a question that has, I really haven't seen addressed by people who understand how these things work, and I think it, it needs to be. Let's ask the question, you know, how could we do it? And uh, the really the, the case for doing it, I think, is extremely strong. That's what I've tried to argue in this broadside. Um, what the Trump administration could do is don't default to the UN as the place for international crisis. You know, we've just seen North Korea is right now testing ballistic missiles and creating yet more trouble. And uh, Ambassador Haley came out and gave a very strong statement on North Korea. I applaud her for it. but. We have been watching the UN do this for years. Uh, it's now 11 years since the UN began imposing sanctions on North Korea for its missile and nuclear programs, and North Korea at this point has conducted five nuclear tests, uh, scores of ballistic <laughs> missile tests, and carries right on. The UN, It's almost, it's a ritual. The UN condemns them, North Korea proceeds. The UN puts on sanctions, North Korea proceeds. and. Um, So Ambassador Haley is doing very well, I think, with what she's got to work with. Uh, I think she's also been terrific on the question of support for Israel, of things that President Obama was uh, turning into a real mess at the UN. But there's a a limit to how far any of this can be taken at the UN. Anything that gets done at the UN Security Council has to have the assent of Russia and China, which gives you... Uh, sort of very limited area in which to maneuver. And what the Trump administration, I think, needs to be doing is looking for ways to work around the UN to make coalitions that don't rely on the UN to actually ask not what is the structure of the UN dating back to the days of Stalin and, 19, and Truman in 1945, but what are the needs of the 21st century? What is it that it really is in America's interest? And how do we deal with the... Rapidly rising threats that come after eight years in which President Obama Basically deferred and defaulted to the United Nations over and over the result being growing threats on every side from China from Russia from Iran from North Korea and Countries that are now trying to figure out how to maneuver because US leadership Really fell by the wayside for some years there Um, so for, for ambassador Haley it will be it's difficult to try to dispense with the u n while working within the u n okay that's a and I think that she's been walking a difficult line so far very well, but what the Trump administration more broadly should do, I hope they will uh, we have yet to see is try to go around the u n is ask how can we do this without the u n is ask not what is it we owe to the u n but what is it we owe to the United States? And the way that the private sector could help them, the the pundits, the commentators, the analysts, is it would be of great benefit to have some serious attention given to the question of how do we supplant the UN? It is outdated, it is dangerous, it gets ever bigger, it is utterly resistant to reform. It's been tried over and over again. Is there not some way to move beyond this and find something that relies more on actual U.S. interests, on actual competition? What you hear over and over about the U.N. is it may be imperfect, but it's all we've got. And the point I am trying to make here, and that I hope the Trump administration will understand and do something with, is if the U.N. is all we've got, it is way past time to come up with something else.
0: The name of the broadside is What to Do About the UN, and we've been speaking with its author, Claudia Rosette. Claudia, thanks so much for speaking with us today.
1: Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thank you.
0: For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.